Hey there and welcome to the Duncan Pentecostal Church podcast streaming from Vancouver Island here in Canada. And however you have found our podcast, we're so glad you're here. Before we jump into today's message, just a couple things I want to let you know. If you go to our website, www.duncanchurch.com, you're going to find a couple easy ways where you can connect with us. We have an online connect card you can fill out. Maybe let us know where you're listening from and check off the option to receive our what's happening email we send this out once a week it's a great way to stay connected with everything that's going on here at the church and even online apart from that there is a give button so if you're feeling led you can do that right online through our website you can also find us on facebook and youtube we are so glad you're tuning in and we are believing that god's going to do something special in you through today's message enjoy Uh, well, this morning, we are going to be wrapping up the book of Hebrews. That's, a, that's, that's exciting. I mean, it's a big accomplishment. We, um, we are, we, we are going to be finishing off chapter 13. We've only taken 13 years to get through the book. But we are going to be wrapping it up this morning. It's also exciting because it means we're going to be starting a new book uh, very shortly here. So stay tuned. Uh, do you want to know what it is? Yes, I'm sure you do. So we'll be starting a new book very shortly. I'll tell you this much. It's an Old Testament book. Um, it's more than 13 chapters, I think. It won't take us as long to get through it, though. I'll tell you that much. Uh, we'll be doing probably a chapter a Sunday, maybe even two chapters in a Sunday. Don't hold me to that. But um, anyway, so I'm excited because, yeah, it's a big accomplishment finishing this book. But before we look at the rest of chapter 13, I want to begin by reminding us about the context of the book of Hebrews that we've been studying for the last 13 years. Um, This book, really, the context is written to, the author writes to uh, uh, first century Hebrew Christians. Hebrew meaning Jewish, uh, or basically not you and I, because I don't know if there's anyone in the congregation that actually is Jewish, of Jewish heritage. Uh, Gentiles would be the opposite of a Jew. And so this is written, the book was written to these discouraged first century Hebrew Christians that were um, they were living in a time when basically the, the, the influence and the, the pressures and the persecution of their fellow Hebrews was very strong to kind of be like, why are you doing this Christian thing? Uh, you've left the temple for, for what? You've left the altar for what? You've left, you, we have a high priest and what do you have? And all these things and they were pressuring. There was, there was actually, there was even persecution to the point of some of these Hebrew Christians were even losing homes and different things because of the pressures to return to Judaism and temple worship. So this is the context. You've got these discouraged Hebrew Christians in the first century. The theme though really of the book of Hebrews that we've seen is that Jesus is better. That's why we don't need to return. That's why he's trying to say to these Hebrew Christians that are discouraged, you don't need to go back to Judaism because Jesus is better. He's better than Moses. He's better than the angels. He's better than any high priest that has ever been. He's better than the whole old covenant because he brings in a new covenant in his blood. He's a better sacrifice. He's better, better, better. In the words of Hillsong Kids, he's better than anyone. Anyone know that song? Can you sing it with me? Jesus, you're my superhero. My star. Oh, come on. There's like two people. Yeah, we used to listen to this all the time when our kids were young. He's better than anyone. That's the reality that the theme of Hebrews is really getting at. Jesus is better. He's better. And so the last time we were in Hebrews, before Easter, I mentioned um, this, this kind of key idea. We're getting to chapter 13. And chapter 13 is this real transition in the book. It all of a sudden turns into kind of live this kind of way. But we have to remember that we're only in chapter 13 
because we've done chapters 1 through 12. And chapters 1 through 12 established for us who Jesus is and what Jesus has done. And therefore, we get to chapter 13. Right? We, we like to sometimes get a little bit backwards. The New Testament re- letters are the vast majority of the time written this way, where they, it starts with doctrine, who we are in Christ, what Jesus has done for us, then it goes to practice, practicality. And we kind of get those flipped around sometimes as Christians. Take me straight to the doing, but we've we got to remember that it's all established in what Jesus has done for us before we can do anything for him. And so we're here at chapter 13, but don't be mistaken. Don't think this is just some one-off. We've had 12 chapters to get to this chapter establishing who Jesus is, that because Jesus is better, we have a better way to live as a response. That's essentially what's going on. So if you have a Bible, if you don't have a Bible, look around you. Unless you're in the very front row, then you need to find a, you'll need to ask the people behind you to give you one. But you need a Bible this morning. And uh, it's much easier to follow along if you have a Bible. If you have it, open it up to the book of Hebrews. Simply go to the back of your Bible, go to Revelation, and then start going backwards, Jude and 1st, 2nd, 3rd John, 1st, 2nd Peter, James, and you will hit the book of Hebrews. If it's one of the Bibles in the chairs, it's page 1009, because I use the same Bible that is in the seats around you. So do grab a Bible. It's much easier to follow along with us. I want to read to us the portion, and then we're going to pray before we look this morning together at a better way to close off the book of Hebrews. So we're going to begin in verse 8 of chapter 13. That's what I like. I just heard that. Did you hear that? That's what I want to hear. All right? So if, if you have a Bible, just start to do that. It just gives me great comfort to know that you're in a Bible following along. All right. Uh, chapter 13, verse 8. Jesus Christ is the same yesterday and today and forever. Do not be led away by diverse and strange teachings, for it is good for the heart to be strengthened by grace, not by foods which have not benefited those devoted to them. We have an altar from which those who serve the tent have no right to eat. For the bodies of those animals whose blood is brought into the holy places by the high priest as a sacrifice for sin are burned outside the camp. So Jesus also suffered outside the gate in order to sanctify the people through his own blood. Therefore, let us go to him outside the camp and bear the reproach he endured. For here we have no lasting city, but we seek the city that is to come." Through him, then, let us continually offer up a sacrifice of praise to God. That is the fruit of lips that acknowledge his name. Do not neglect to do good and to share what you have, for such sacrifices are pleasing to God. Obey your leaders and submit to them, for they are keeping watch over your souls as those who will have to give an account. Let them do this with joy and not with groaning, for that would be of no advantage to you. Pray for us, for we are sure that we have a clear conscience, desiring to act honorably in all things. I urge you the more earnestly to do this in order that I may be restored to you the sooner. Now may the God of peace who brought again from the dead our Lord Jesus, the great shepherd of the sheep, by the blood of the eternal covenant, equip you with everything good that you may do his will, working in us that which is pleasing in his sight through Jesus Christ, to whom be glory forever and ever. Amen. I appeal to you, brothers, bear with my word of exhortation, for I have written to you briefly. You should know that our brother Timothy has been released with whom I shall see you if he comes soon. Greet all your leaders and all the saints. Those who come from Italy send you greetings. Grace be with all of you. Father, this morning as we wrap up this book, this wonderful book that has taught us so much about the character of Christ and how truly Jesus is better, I ask God this morning that you would remind us by the the working of your Holy Spirit, teach us this morning by your Holy Spirit 
of how we truly have something better in Jesus, that we don't need to return. For them, it was Judaism. To us, it's often this world. Or maybe it's religiosity. Maybe it's legalism. Whatever it might be, Father, I pray that we would be reminded once again that Jesus is better. It is worth it. That living your way is the way, the best way. Teach us this morning, we ask. Bless your word. Bless our ears and our hearts to receive it. Amen. All right, so uh, the first thing that we're going to see is that in Christ, we have a better sacrifice. We have a better sacrifice. And the reality is this, is that we're first of all going to look at his sacrifice. Then we're going to see our sacrifice. But, but in Jesus, we have a better sacrifice. Beginning in verse 8. Jesus Christ is the same yesterday and today and forever. Now, if you were with us a couple weeks back, you would know that we actually finished with this verse, the, the message that we were going through together. And so you might be going, why? You're just going to take longer, Peter. You're reading a whole other verse again. Uh, the reason being is that this really ties in with the next verse. It sets up where the author is going into verse 9 and actually the next section. And so it's really important actually that we start with this, that Jesus Christ is the same yesterday, today, and forever. Verse 9, do not be led away by diverse and strange teachings. For it is good for the heart to be strengthened by grace, not by foods which have not benefited those devoted to them. Now, the New, New Living, anyone using the New Living Translation this morning? Andrea, is anyone else reading from the New Living Translation? New Living Translation translates it this way. This is why you'll see that verse 8 and 9 tie together. It says this, Jesus Christ is the same yesterday, today, and forever. Then verse 9, so, do you see the connecting word? It says, because of this, he says, so do not be attracted by strange new ideas. And the reality is this, the author is trying to bring out this point. Because Jesus never changes, because Jesus is the same yesterday, today, and forever, neither should our teaching or our faith change. That's what he's kind of getting at here. It shouldn't change. You don't need it to change. Listen, it's worked for 2,000 years, and it still works today. You don't need some new novel ideas. The, the truth of Jesus and what he did for us is timeless. And that is what the author of Hebrews is trying to drive home. Because he never changes, your, your understanding of the scriptures, your walking with him doesn't need to change in that kind of, you don't need new stuff. I've actually heard it said before, when, in regards to faith in Christ, uh, that if it's true, it's not new. And if it's new, it's not true. And what this is guarding against is kind of, sometimes we can get a little bit like, you know, come on pastor, give me something new. Do you know what I'm saying? We kind of want this new, flashy, novel kind of teaching. And the author of Hebrews is saying, listen, Jesus doesn't change. You don't need new stuff. And, and, and for these first century Hebrew Christians, Judaism was, was pressuring them to kind of say, okay, well, you can do the Jesus thing, but you also need to follow the Jew thing. And for them, a huge part of that, of course, you know, was kind of the dietary and kosher laws of the Old Covenant. And so they'd be having this, this, this idea kind of push them, listen, you need to eat right and you'll go to heaven. Well, the truth is, is really this, that you need to eat right or you just might go to heaven sooner. I mean, that's, that's the reality of it, right? You see, righteousness, right, which simply means right standing before God, righteousness isn't about what we put into our stomach. That's what the author of Hebrews is trying to get at. It's not about what we put into our stomach. It's about what God puts into our heart. And what does he put into our heart? His Holy Spirit as a deposit, the scriptures teach us. As a deposit, through what Jesus has done, through faith in Christ, he then deposits his spirit in us. And the danger, the danger, honestly, a lot of us that really, really want to please God is that we run a bit of a risk of wanting to add things to our faith. 
Because we want to maybe, maybe not be more spiritual, but we want to really please God. It's actually out of a good desire oftentimes that we get, sometimes we get sidetracked into dangerous teachings. Something new, something flashy. Oh, this is going to make me a, a better Christian, right? And this is actually, honestly, this is what cults do. This is what cults are about. They've taken the word of God and then they've added things to faith, to, to faith in Christ. But if we're talking about the dietary regulations, what would be the menu for God's righteousness? What does verse 9 say? What does it say? What did he say? He said that your heart be strengthened by... Come on, say it. You can say it. Grace. He says this is what you need for a diet. It's not specific foods. It's the grace of God. Undeserved, unmerited favor upon your life. That's what you need. That's all that you need. Ephesians 2.8 tells us that. It is by grace you have been saved through faith. That's what you need. That's what we need. We need the favor of God upon us, not because we've done anything, but because Jesus has done everything. That's what we need because of his sacrifice for us. In fact, he goes on to kind of develop this idea about the food stuff in in verse 10. Let's read on. He says this, we have an altar from which those who serve the tent have no right to eat. He's trying to make this clear to him. Listen, it's not about these dietary things. In fact, In fact, we have a specific altar that not even those that observe the old covenant laws and regulations about dietary restrictions, they actually aren't even able to eat from. We don't need, he's saying, we don't need to add to the work of Christ. We, in fact, have something that that anybody that is outside of Jesus does not have. We have, he says here, a specific altar that no one else can eat from. what, what, What is an altar? What was an altar for? For sacrifice. It was a place where sacrifices were made. What is the altar that we have in Jesus? Well, he's the sacrifice, but what's the altar? The cross. We just remembered this last Friday. The cross is the altar. This is what the author of Hebrews is speaking of. We have an altar that no one else, the cross of Christ, the work of Jesus Christ, of course, his sacrifice that was, that was made upon that cross, but we have an altar that, that he says no one else, he's saying this, if you really want to remain under the old covenant, if you want to remain under regulations of you do this and don't do that and observe this and observe that, these special days, these special things, if you want to use that as your right standing before God, he says you actually can't share in that altar. You can't share in it. You can't, because we can't stand before God based on the work and the sacrifice of Jesus Christ and our own works or efforts. It's not both and. It's, this is a very either-or situation when it comes to the sacrifice of Christ. It's, it's not both and. It's either-or. You either stand with Jesus and Jesus alone or you're, you're on your own. You, you see, to acknowledge any other place of sacrifice, which is what the, the temple would be doing, was really to deny the all-sufficiency of Christ's sacrifice. And we need to remember that, that his sacrifice, what did he say when he hung on the cross? You've heard me say it a million times. It is finished. Tetelestai, he said. It is finished. Literally, it means paid in full. Not paid in part or in most. Paid in full. It's finished. It's done. There's nothing more that can be added. And when we try to add things to the work of Christ, it's like, whoa, hang on. What can you add to what he's already done? Nothing. Grace, he says. Grace is what you need. He goes on, actually, in verse 11. For the bodies of those animals whose blood is brought into the holy places by the high priest as a sacrifice for sin, are burned outside the camp. So Jesus also suffered outside the gate in order to sanctify the people 
through his own blood. So what's going on here? What's he talking about here? Last Sunday, if you attended the Easter service with us, I talked a little bit about this specific day of the year, the, the, the most important day of the year for Hebrews, which was known as the Day of Atonement, Yom Kippur. This specific day, the high priest, this was the only time once a year that the high priest of Israel was allowed to go into what was known as the most holy place in the temple. The Holy of Holies was another word for it. They would take a bull and they'd have to sacrifice that bull, first of all, for the sins of himself and his own family, the high priest. That was the first thing that they had to do. They had to sacrifice a bull. Then they had to take, they would, what they would do is they'd take two goats. I might have said it was a lamb last week. It's not. It was two goats on this specific day, the Day of Atonement. Uh, they would take two goats. One goat, what they'd do is they would lay their hands on the goat and they would confess their sins onto this goat. It's where we get our term a scapegoat. They became the scapegoat because then what they did with that goat is they let it out from the camp and they just let it into the wilderness and let it go, let it be. The other goat, what they would do is they would kill it and they would then sprinkle its blood. The, the high priest, the one time that they were allowed to go through that thick, three-foot thick veil curtain that separated the, the, the holy place, the rest of the temple from the most holy place, they would then go through that veil, through that curtain, and they would take the, the blood from this goat and they would sprinkle it on what was known, the different articles in the most holy place, but specifically uh, what was known as the uh, mercy seat of forgiveness. And that was to then to, to pay the price for the sins of the people. Then they would come back out. Leviticus 16 tells you all about this if you want to read about it. There's like a whole chapter on the Day of Atonement. So important to the nation of Israel. Then what they would do is they would take, they would take that bull as well as that goat and they would, sometimes um, in different sacrifices in the temple, they would burn all of the, a burnt offering, right? You, you're probably aware of that term. At this, with this specific sacrifice, on this specific day, what they were told to do though is to not just burn it in the temple. They were actually told to take it outside the camp. It's really strange. Why would God do that? He says, no, don't, don't burn it in the temple, which like all the other sacrifices. This one time, what I want you to do is I want you to take it outside the camp and burn it. Outside the camp. Be done with it. The bull and the, and the goat. Everything had to be burnt outside the camp. Well, the author of Hebrews is tying this together for us. He's saying, listen, you need to understand this. What this was was a picture. God prophetically was speaking about the ultimate sacrifice that would come. Jesus. And he's saying here, he suffered outside the gate in order to sanctify the people through his own blood. He's saying this was a picture of Jesus who would have to suffer outside the gate. He would have to, he would have to die outside the city so that his blood could sanctify, which simply means to make holy, his people when it's applied to us. The only time that they were told to do this, and it was a picture. Think, where was Christ crucified? Where was he crucified? Golgotha. Golgotha was not in the city. It was outside the city gate. And that's what the author of Hebrews is getting at. He was taken outside the camp to a place called Golgotha. That's where he was crucified for you and for me in the same way like those sacrifices that were burnt outside the camp. And so he, goes, he says this, Therefore, verse 13, Therefore, let us go to him outside the camp and bear the reproach he endured. He's tying this together. He's saying, listen, if Jesus had to bear reproach by being outside the camp, you better expect the same thing in living for Jesus. And how many of you know that choosing to live for Christ and surrendering your life to Christ, it doesn't mean you're always going to be the most popular person at work or at school or in the world in general, right? You're not always going to, it's not going to be the most popular thing to do. You may need to bear reproach from time to time. 1 Corinthians chapter 1, verse 22 to 23 
It, it kind of gives us some of the reasoning behind why we may bear reproach living for Jesus. What does it say? It says, Jews demand signs. And Greeks, just simply meaning non-Jews or Gentiles, they look for wisdom. But what do we preach? Christ crucified. We preach Christ crucified, a stumbling block to Jews and foolishness to Gentiles. And what Paul is getting out here is the fact that the cross doesn't always make sense. To a Jewish person, it's a stumbling block. They're like, I can't get over the fact that that can't be the Messiah. The Messiah wouldn't come and die, right? It's a stumbling block for them. I, I, they can't get over the cross. To a, a Gentile, which would, again, be the vast majority of us today, a Gentile will look at the cross, and maybe you've had this before. People are like, that's just stupid. That's dumb. How can you believe that this, this weird story of this, you say God, that died on this cross for your sin, and that's just dumb. It's what Paul says here, it's foolish. That's the reality, is that the cross, there's times we need to bear reproach. It doesn't make sense to this world. It doesn't make sense. But he's saying this, but listen, if Christ bore reproach from those Jews, as well as the Romans, as he hung on that cross, why would we expect any different in following him? Right? Why would we expect any different if we're going to follow Jesus? However, he, he does say this, he says, you know what, though, but it's worth it. Why is it worth it? Look at the, the, the reproach for Christ's sacrifice is worth it when it's viewed in light of verse 14. For what does it say? For it says, for here, here we have no lasting city, but we seek the city that is to come. And you got to remember, he's writing to, to Hebrew first century Christians that weren't that far from Jerusalem. And if you, you, if you knew, if you were a Jew, Jerusalem was everything. And he's saying, that's not it, guys. This, we don't have a lasting city here. We seek a city that is to come. This is why we should be willing to bear reproach for Christ on this earth. Because, you guys, this isn't our home. This isn't, we don't have a city here that we belong to. The Bible calls us aliens. Like, look at the person beside you and be like, you're an alien. Come on, tell the person you... I heard you say, oh, you're not an alien. No, you were strangers. We're aliens, the Bible says. In fact, Ephesians 3.20 actually tells us that our citizenship is not Canadian or whatever citizenship you may have. Our citizenship is in heaven. We've got a different passport. We don't belong here. Ultimately, this, we're just we're visiting. We're just visiting. We're just passing through. That's the reality of our life here on this earth. Our city, our dwelling place, that's what he says. It's not found on this earth. We're just, this is why I can say things like I did last week in the message, that, that when we say that death today is really just an incident in an endless life. Do you get that? It's because this isn't, this isn't where we belong. It's just a blip. It's just a bump in the road. We're not here forever. We have, we have an endless life with God. And the reality is, is that an eternal perspective... An eternal perspective puts all things into perspective. That's what we need. An eternal perspective puts all things into perspective. That's why Paul would write in 2 Corinthians chapter 4, verses 16 to 18. He would tell us what? He would say, therefore, we do not lose heart. Right? He says, no, you don't, don't lose heart. Don't give up. Don't, don't give up. Why? He says, though outwardly, he says, though outwardly we may be wasting away, what does he say? Yet inwardly we are being renewed day by day. I think, Joby, we have this passage for the, everyone to read. Right? So, so therefore we do not lose heart. Though outwardly we are wasting away, yet inwardly we are being renewed day by day. And he goes on to say what? For our light and momentary troubles. They don't feel light and momentary. 
when we're in them, do they? But he says, but they're light and momentary when you compare it to eternity. He says, they're achieving for us an eternal glory that far outweighs them all. Whatever we're going to have far outweighs whatever you're walking through in this life. And so what is he going to say? He says, so you know what we do? We don't fix our eyes on what, what is seen. That's not what we do. We don't fix our eyes on this earth, on what's around us right here, right now. We don't fix our eyes on what is seen. Instead, we fix our eyes on what is unseen. For what is seen is temporary. It's temporal. It's going to pass away. But what is unseen is eternal. An eternal perspective puts all things into perspective. And so when we see in Christ that we have a better sacrifice it's then that what we do, if we see his sacrifice, you know what? We then offer our sacrifice. These first century Hebrew Christians, they're coming out of Judaism, and they would have had a real hard time letting go of the sacrifices. So the author wants to remind them, listen, they're, they're kind of saying like, hey, you know, you don't have a sacrifice anymore. He's like, you do have a sacrifice. This is what the author of Hebrews is telling them. You do have a sacrifice. We still have a sacrifice to offer. We don't offer animals anymore. So I'm, I'm sorry if you came this morning with an animal to sacrifice. We don't do that here, even though some of you maybe would want to. I see Andrew looking. I, I, yes, Andrew and Mel. I actually had you in my notes. Um, uh, Andrew and Mel at our board meeting last Tuesday, Mel was like, can we pray that my dog dies? Andrew's like, can I second that for my talk? And I'm like, what is going on here? What's with our board members? But they're, like, they're on their last legs, and they're like 15 years old. They, they should have passed a little while ago already, and so... It's not really sadistic. It's kind of out of mercy. So perhaps they brought their animals here this morning. That, um, but we're not going to sacrifice your animals, I'm sorry to say. Your children are like, what? <laughs> sorry, Rose. <laughs> Benny had a good life. Benny was a good dog. Oh, boy. <sighs> I'm just a meanie. I saw Andrew look at Mel, you know, I couldn't resist. It was... So listen, we don't, we don't offer animal sacrifice anymore. Benny will die in his own time, all right? So that's going to, your mom's praying it sooner than later, but it will happen in his own time. So we don't have animal sacrifices to offer, but the reality is, is that we do have a sacrifice to bring to God. I don't know if you knew that, but we have a sacrifice that we can bring to God. Look at verse 15. Through him... Then let us continually offer up a sacrifice of praise to God. That is the fruit of lips that acknowledge his name. Do you see that? He's saying here, you do have a sacrifice. Here's our sacrifice, the fruit of our lips. Not the fruit of the loom. Don't want to see any underwear showing up here next week. The fruit of our lips. The fruit of our lips, he says. This is a sacrifice that you can give to God. You see, the reality is, is it's not enough for us just to, think, just to think kind of warm thoughts to God. It's actually warm under the light, even. I just gave praise to God. He says, that's not good enough, Peter. I want to hear it. God actually says that. I want to hear you give me praise. I want to hear it come from your lips. I want to hear you say it. I want to hear it. And he calls it a sacrifice of praise. And, and I think we need to ask this question is that we need to think, do our lips, do my lips declare God's praises? Or do my lips convey a sacrifice of praise, the fruit of my lips? One way that we do that is through singing songs. Sunday mornings we come here, we already did that this morning, we sing songs of praise to God. And it's a beautiful thing, I don't know about you, but when I come and when I sing with the people of God, with my family, praises to God, it lifts my heart, it lifts my spirits. 
And I believe that is a sacrifice that God says, I love it. I love it. And you might be going, well, Peter, but you haven't heard me sing. If you heard me sing, you wouldn't say, sing to the Lord. Well, you know what? Just sing a little bit quieter maybe then. But sing. But sing. Sing to the Lord. Maybe, maybe to be honest, maybe that's part of your sacrifice of praise. Is that there's a little bit, you know what? The word sacrifice speaks of a cost. And maybe it costs you something. Maybe pride. Are people going to hear me saying, oh, you know what? Maybe that's part of what it is is that you, you lay down that right, and that's a cost to you, to sacrifice. You, but you're going to praise God. We're told, Scripture over and over tells us again, sing to the Lord. Sing to the Lord. Over and over again, it's a repeated command of Scripture. Sing to the Lord. It's something that we should do. It's one of the ways that we can offer a sacrifice of praise to God. But it's not the only way that we can offer a sacrifice of praise, the fruit of our lips. It's not just through singing songs. It's also through just our speech in general. And I want to challenge you this morning, what does your speech sound like outside these walls? What does your speech sound like? Sound like? Is, it, is it praising to God? How you speak to coworkers, or how you speak to employees, or how you speak to your children or your classmates, how you speak to your, your children, how you speak to your spouse, does it give praise to God? You know, that might be more of a sacrifice for you than it is to sing songs. Maybe you can sing songs all day long and it's no problem. But speaking to your spouse in a way that gives glory to God is a whole other thing. Maybe that's a sacrifice. You've got to bite your tongue. Does it give praise to God? But this isn't the only way to bring a sacrifice to God. Look at verse 16. He says, Do not neglect to do good and to share what you have, for such sacrifices are pleasing to God. You know, if we sing praises to God, if we speak all day long glorifying things of Him, but we can't get along with others, if we don't, as he says here, help or share with others, if we're not generous with others, you know what? What's the point? Really, is that not the definition of hypocrisy? What's the point? Our life should model our words. And so he says here, you need to also do good. You also need to share, be generous with others. Share what you have. That actually pleases God. And you'd be like, well, how does that please God? How many of you have kids? Anybody here have kids? Some of you are lying because I know you have kids and your hands aren't up. Those of us that have kids, we know this, especially when they were young. But you know what? It's just as special when they're older. Our kids now are 21 and 20. And it, is, it blesses Andrea's and my heart when we see them, number one, speak well to each other, say nice things to one another. But you know what blesses my heart even more is when I see them be generous with one another. When they'll be like, you know what? Oh, let me buy that for you. And doesn't it just warm your heart? And you see, it's like if you've got little kids, when your little kids speak nice to one another and when they share their toys right? Isn't it a blessing? In the same way, it's like, I've never experienced that. Well, they, they will at one point. <laughs> That's the same with God, the Father. He, it blesses his heart when we speak nice, not just to him, but to one another, and when we also share what we have with one another. It warms his heart. God, listen, God doesn't just want lip service. He wants lips and service. That's really, I think, what this is telling us. He wants lips that praise and a life that serves others that does good and shares with others. So that's the, the first thing that we kind of see. We have a better sacrifice. Next, we see that in Christ, we have better leaders. Verse 17. Obey your leaders and submit to them, for they are keeping watch over your souls as those who will have to give an account. Let them do this with joy and not with groaning, for that would be of no advantage to you. I should probably read that verse another 10 or 20 times. I really feel like this is where the Lord wants us to park this morning. I'm actually going to start a sermon series next week 
all about this verse. We're going to be six weeks in verse 17. Of... <laughs> to be honest, it's actually kind of awkward for me to talk about. Really, you read that. He's not talking about just any sort of leader. He's not talking about the government here. He's talking about your spiritual leaders. And it's kind of weird. I mean, think about it. If a pastor has to stand up and say, respect me, submit to me. I mean, hasn't it already been lost kind of a long time ago, really? You know what I mean? Like, it's kind of a, kind of a weird thing. But this verse is, what it's really speaking about is the role of the leader, and it's talking about the role of the people. And the first thing it says, it says that a better leader is pastoral. Notice verse 17. It says that they keep watch over your souls. Keeping watch over your souls. In the Greek, the, the, the phrase there, keeping watch, it literally refers to like a shepherd caring for sheep, or even um, it even speaks about a watchman staying up to watch over to guard a city, that that's what a spiritual leader is to be doing for your lives. In fact, one commentary even pointed out the fact that it actually conveys the, the idea or the thought of even losing sleep, like the watchman that would have to stay up late, losing sleep over your congregation. That's what one of the, the guys said. It's like, well, why would you want to choose that role, hey? It happens from time to time, where we lose sleep sometimes for our congregation. But there's so many instructions in Scripture that pastors and church leaders, that the role is really to serve their people, to keep watch over the souls of their people. A better leader is also accountable. Verse 17 says that as those who will have to give an account. So they keep watch over your souls, but they have to give an account to God one day. In fact, Scripture tells us that, that spiritual leaders, pastors and shepherds, that they will actually face a harsher judgment before God. The Word of God is clear about that. And so, you know what, if, if you don't attend this church regularly, some of you maybe that are, don't regularly attend DPC, maybe you attend a different church or, or from out of town right now, or maybe you're going to a different church, or maybe at some point or another you're going to attend a different church, you need to know this, that really what he's getting at here is, is he's saying, listen, do they handle, they will give an account to God. Do they handle the Word of God accurately? Do they use the Word of God? Listen, if you, if you don't attend our church and you go to a church where they don't use the Word of God, leave that church. You need to go somewhere where the word of God is preached, where they are faithful to God's word, not their word, not their opinion, not what the latest, greatest things are being taught. That's what he warns us at the very beginning. You need to go somewhere where they take the word of God, that they expound it. Please do that. Do that. They will give an account. And do they call you to a higher standard in Christ? That's what spiritual leaders are called to do. They are, they are, to, they are going to be held accountable. I will stand before God one day and have to give an account for what I did with his word and for what I did with his people and encouraging and challenging them and calling to a higher standard. And not only that, but we'll be called to an account because it's not just how we lead in word, but also in deed. Do they lead by example? Do they lead by example? You see, then we see that the role of the people with this kind of a leader is to obey and to submit to them. And, and again, just let me make this clear. This is not some sort of blind obedience or, or submission. What are we warned at the very beginning of this, this message that we talked about? He, he warned us, don't be led away by diverse and strange teachings. So this isn't just some blind, I'm going to follow that guy because they're cool. No, it's, it's, it's I'm going to follow them because they're keeping watch over my soul and that they're going to stand an account one day before God. And they're, they're worth following. Better leaders follow Jesus. They follow his word and ultimately... They submit to Christ in all, in, in all things. And so I would say this. This is why the role of the people is to submit and follow them. is because they're worth it. Do you, do you hear what I'm saying? That's what he's getting at. They should be worth following. This is the kind of leader that God calls you to obey and submit to. In fact, as verse 17 says, 
so that they can lead with joy and not with groaning. And I have to say that I have to thank you that as your leader, as your pastor for the past 13 years here, that verse has been true for the most part. I don't want your heads to get too big. Uh, it's, but it really has been. It's been a joy. And it has been without groaning that I have been able to serve you. It's, it's, it was interesting. I was actually just, I heard just this last week, I was talking to Andrea about it. Um, there was a survey that was done. That they, they discovered that the average pastor in North America will leave a church over seven people. And they said this. It's interesting because you can have a, a church of 100 people and 93 of those people are just the most amazing, fantastic people, but there's seven that just are difficult. And that's enough for the pastor to leave. They also said this, though. It's not just a church of 100. They said a church of 200. You can have 193 wonderful people. But seven people that are just really, really hard, that pastor will leave. And he, they said that it's not even 200. It can be 1,000, 993 incredible people. But seven that just grind the pastor down. And that pastor, over seven people. And, and, and I think it's a bit of a thing, a couple of things that really spoke to me. I said to Andrea as we were, we were, I think, on our walk talking about this. You know, a couple of things. I think it just, it reminded me that we need to focus on whatever it is, the 93. You know what I'm saying? God is doing a good thing, that there's always going to be those seven that kind of, you know, but there's, there's the 93, there's 193, there's however many it might be that we need to give thanks to God for. But then, those seven, smarten up. Really? I mean, those seven need to get their acting gear. Do, like, just, just be willing. Be willing to work with whoever you're sitting under. You know, it really, it, it actually reminds me a lot about the wife who um, one Sunday morning was shaking her husband to wake him up, to get him up for church. Come on, get up, get up. And the husband's like, oh, kind of turns over. And he's like, do I have to go again, like every Sunday? And, and the wife's like, well, of course you do. You're the pastor. <laughs> Make it a joy. Make it a joy. And you do. I, I mean, it's, like I say, this is weird for me to preach because I feel blessed. I feel that I'm blessed to serve the congregation that I serve here. But also, we see this, that better leaders also need your prayers. Look at verse 18. He says, pray for us, for we are sure that we have a clear conscience, desiring to act honorably in all things. The, the author basically says this, you know what, we're doing our best, but we still need your prayers. I think, you know what, if anything good comes out of my life, if anything good comes out of any pastor's life, you know why? It's because, honestly, I believe it's because God is gracious and because people pray. That's the reality. You know, a pastor's job really is to maintain integrity and a congregation's job is, is to lift them up in prayer. He even urges them. He goes on. He urges them in verse 19. He says, I urge you the more earnestly to do this, to pray for me in order that I may be restored to you the sooner. And, and I have to say, you know, I'm so thankful for the prayers of many. I know that there are many of you in this congregation that pray for me faithfully. I, I don't have to urge you like the author of Hebrews does. And so thank you so much for doing that. It's so encouraging, really, for me to know that. You know, it's been said before, if you can't take out the message, you take out the messenger. I mean, that's why you see these, these big churches, right? And you see these falls of these pastors. Because there's, there is great attack upon the spiritual leaders that serve over you. I think of, of Dana downstairs with the kids. Pray for Dana. I think of Connor, who leads worship. Pray for, pray for your pastoral team. Pray for us. We need your prayers. But thirdly, we see this. Pray for your leaders because, you know what? We pray for you. Because in Christ, we see that we have a better blessing. And the author now actually, in a sense, prays a blessing over 
these first century Hebrew Christians in a, real, in, in, in a style reminiscent of the ironic blessing of Numbers chapter 6. He goes in verse 20, he says this, Now may the God of peace, who brought again from the dead our Lord Jesus, the great shepherd of the sheep by the blood of the eternal covenant. You see this, this theme, he just can't get away from this theme of Jesus. He's better, he's better, he's the great shepherd. He's, it's Jesus, Jesus, Jesus. Jesus is better right through till the end. And he, he first of all says this, he says there's a better blessing of peace in Christ. There is a better blessing of peace in Christ. You know, the reality is, is that we were enemies of God. It, it began in the garden. We were enemies of God. We were enemies of God. But in Christ, the war is over. Joby, we should be on three, number one. One more. There we go. Okay, so we have peace in Christ. We were at war with God. We were enemies with God. It began in the garden, but... But that war is over. That's what Hebrews, these first 12 chapters of Hebrews has established for us, that the war is over, that once and for all, we can have peace with God through the work that Christ did for us. And so he, he prays that blessing of peace over them. He also prays this blessing of provision in Christ. Verse 20, he said that the, he talks about the, the great shepherd who by the blood of the eternal covenant, and what is he, this is incredible, this provision, because we need to understand we need to understand that under the old covenant, I think there should be a number two now. I don't know if my notes are maybe a little messy back there, Joby. There should be a number two, provision in Christ. So these are going to go pretty quick, Joby. Uh, the provision in Christ. Under the old covenant, the, 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 think about this. The, the sheep died for the shepherd under the old covenant, correct? Under the new covenant, it's the other way around. The shepherd died for the sheep. Isn't that beautiful? Christ has provided for us. There's a blessing that's been provided in Christ because of the work he did for us. And that's what Hebrews has really established throughout the book. Right, that, that his blood, the eternal covenant, which is so great because you know, that just speaks of the fact that it will never fail you. His blood will never fail you. It will never not be enough. Eternal. It will always be enough. Always be enough. There's also the blessing, thirdly, of power in Christ. He says, may God through Christ, then verse 21, equip you with everything good that you may do his will, working in us that which is pleasing in his sight through Jesus Christ. Notice, God works in us so that we can work for him. You know, I've heard Christianity described this way. We work out what he works in. That's, I think, an accurate description. We work out what he works in. You think about it. God, God calls us to do all kinds of things. And what does he do? That He then equips us to, to do what he calls us to do. Right? He's like, go, go serve this person. Oh, really? Yeah. And you go to serve that person, and he provides whatever it is he's calling you to serve them with. It's kind of like, you know, it's like we borrow his car and he's like, oh, by the way, fill it up when you're done. And he's like, oh, and here's a hundred bucks. Oh, wow. Which wouldn't get you much today, get you a quarter tank. So he gives us 400 bucks. He gives you a full tank. So he not only calls you to do something, but he totally provides everything to do it. That's amazing. That's the God that we serve. It's, it's so much like Warren Wearsby's definition of ministry, which you've heard me say so many times, but I love it. That ministry happens when divine resources meet human needs through loving channels to the glory of God. This is, what, this is the blessing that we have in Christ, that, that he calls us to do things and then he equips us to do all of it. Ministry happens when divine resources, are they your resources? No, they're actually God's. Divine resources meet human needs. We look around, there's all kinds of needs all around us through loving channels. That's all that we're called to be. Isn't that amazing? We just have to be a loving channel that God can, can pour his resources through. Why? So that he gets the glory. Then we see this. Fourth, we give the blessing of praise to Christ. Verse 21 continues, through Jesus Christ, to whom be glory forever and ever. Amen. This is always our greatest need. 
right, is to get our eyes off of our circumstances, right, off of what we are stuck in and to put them on to Christ. That's what praise does, right? That's what he says, through Jesus Christ, to whom be glory forever and ever. Amen. Praise him. Give him glory. When we do that, everything changes. And this is what the author of the Hebrews is kind of praying over his people. But do you see kind of how there's a bit of a two-way street here? Leaders ask for your prayers, and then the leaders pray for the people. That's essentially what's going on. By, you know, and you need to know this. By name, I pray for many of you. By face, I pray for you by congregation. My prayer journal, you could look at it, and you could see many of your names are in that prayer journal as I pray for you guys. And, and you know what I pray? I pray that, honestly, that we're a family that prays for one another. But finally, we see this, that in Christ, we have a better closing. Look at verse 22. I appeal to you, brothers, there's also a footnote there you'll see in the text, and sisters. So I appeal to you, brothers and sisters, all of us, bear with my word of exhortation, for I have written to you briefly. You should get a chuckle from that. Thirteen chapters later, he says this, I've written to you briefly. I mean, this is my kind of guy. Very brief in words, right? You can actually take the book of Hebrews, you can sit down and read it in about an hour. So I think this is the benchmark for being brief. <laughs> I'm just taking my cues from Scripture, right? This is, I, I have very brief sermons here, um, right? You, as long as it stays under an hour, it's brief. So there you go. Don't blame me. Blame the author of Hebrews. At verse 23, he goes on, You should know that our brother Timothy has been released, with whom I shall see you if he comes soon. Greet all your leaders and all the saints. Those who come from Italy send you greetings. Grace be with all of you. I love that. You know, we began in verse 9 this morning with this reminder that our hearts would be strengthened by grace. And how does he close off? He closes off the letter here with a very similar call, very similar desire. Grace be with all of you. Because what do we truly need? We need grace. We need grace. That's the echo of this letter. We've heard it right from the start. Jesus, 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 Jesus. Just echoes on. Is better, 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 better. Grace, 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 grace. Right? It gets echoed through the entire letter to us. That is what we need. You see, the old covenant was based on the law of Moses. The new covenant is based on grace through the blood of Christ. And it's not to be confused with mercy. Okay? Mercy. Uh, mercy simply is not getting what you deserve. Okay, so sometimes we get these confused mercy and grace. They're two different things. Mercy is not getting what you deserve. What do we deserve? We deserve death. We deserve punishment. We deserve the wrath of God. But God's mercy says, I'm not going to give you what you deserve. Instead, he says, I'm going to give you grace, which is getting what you don't deserve. So that's how they, they kind of relate to one another. One is not getting what you deserve. Mercy and grace is getting what you don't deserve. And you know what? I, I just want to wrap it up this morning. I, I, we need to understand this. I hope you don't get tired of hearing this because I don't get tired of saying it, but we need to remember that the core of the Christian life isn't about what we do for God. It is done. It's done in Christ. The core of the Christian life is about what Christ has done for us on the cross. That's what it's about. It's all about Jesus. That's what the letter of Hebrews has been all about. And that's why he closes off this letter with just simply that, in a sense, of prayer to say, grace be with all of you. Because that is what we need. That's what we need to remember. He wraps it up kind of how he starts. It's all about Jesus. It's nothing that you can do. It's all about Jesus. I want to close this morning with prayer. And, uh, and I want to just close with essentially the same kind of prayer to be upon us. That we would experience the grace of God, his favor in our life this morning. And so can we pray this morning? 
as we come before the Lord. Jesus, we thank you for this book of Hebrews that taught us so much about the depth and the richness of how you fulfilled so much of that old covenant. Not that we continue the old covenant, it's, it's a new covenant now. It's completed, it's finished, it's fulfilled in you, Jesus. And I thank you, God, that it's not about, we have, we have only essentially one, maybe almost two chapters in this 13-chapter letter that really focus on now what we are to do. Because really, it's all about what you have already done. 99.9999% is all about what you have already done. And we just respond now by saying, well, then this is how I will live my life. Out of the grace that you have poured upon me and upon us. Lord, I pray for, I pray for anybody in this room today God, that needs an awakening again of your grace. Lord, maybe this past week was difficult. Maybe there, was, maybe there were some things that, that were walked through that were a little bit messy. Maybe there were some mess-ups. Lord, I thank you for your mercy that you don't give us what we deserve. We get to live another day. And Lord, I thank you for your grace that you actually say, you know what, you messed up and I'm gonna pour upon you heaps, heaps, of love and favor. Not because you are great, but because Jesus, my son, did everything for you. And so, Lord, help us to remember, God, as we come out of this Easter weekend, this Easter season, Lord, that the resurrection isn't for one day a year. The resurrection, the sacrifice of Jesus Christ, applies to every day of the year. It's an eternal covenant that you have made with us, the blood of the eternal covenant. And so, Lord, I pray right now that your blood would be applied to each and every one of us, Jesus that that blessing would be known, would be felt, would be experienced today, that the mercy and the grace of God would just be experienced right now. Thanks for listening to the podcast from Duncan Pentecostal Church, located here in Duncan, British Columbia, on beautiful Vancouver Island. At DPC, we believe in teaching the whole Bible to build whole believers who can impact the whole world. For more information about us, find us online at www.duncanchurch.com or find us on Facebook and YouTube by searching Duncan Pentecostal Church. Have a great day.